May it please the podcast. Good day, listeners, and welcome to On Trial. I'm your host, Christopher DiGennaro, a commercial litigator with a focus on trial practice at Foley and Lardner in the firm's New York office. For this, the inaugural episode of the On Trial podcast, we sit down with Foley senior partner Peter Wang, a legendary New York trial lawyer with nearly 50 years' experience. In addition to offering his thoughts on an effective opening statement, the most important part of a trial in his view, Peter shares some of his trial rituals and most memorable trial moments, including a cross-examination gaffe by an opposing lawyer, which resulted in a swift victory for Peter's client, as well as a tale of what not to do at trial, courtesy of a career litigator with little to no trial experience who couldn't resist advancing an alternative but tone-deaf theory as to why Peter's client was not entitled to damages. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'll be back afterwards for summation. Chris, thank you. It's great to be with you today. I have to say what I'm described as legendary. I I, <laughs> I feel that that's just a euphemism for old, but, uh, <laughs> but I'll accept it. Okay, very good. And by way of background, Peter is a litigation partner at Foley and Lardner in the firm's New York office. He served as the managing partner of Foley's New York office for over 15 years. Before that, he was a named founding partner of the New York litigation firm Friedman, Wang & Bleiberg, which merged with Foley in 2004. And Peter's been practicing for nearly 50 years since clerking for Judge Milton Pollack in the Southern District of New York. And significantly, he's a member of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. So again, Peter, thanks so much for being here. As you know, this is the first episode of the On Trial podcast. And when I put pen to paper on this podcast, you were far and away the first choice for my first guest. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So you and I have something in common, and I'm not talking about our love for the game of golf. I'm talking about our love for trying cases. What do you think it is about trial that is so exciting and thrilling? We've talked about it before. There's nothing like trying a case, especially before a jury. Well, there, there are a couple of things. I think, first of all, there is definitely a performative aspect to it, and you get immediate feedback. You win or you lose. I think there's nothing more exciting than trying a case, and there's nothing more nerve-wracking than waiting for the decision, especially if it's a jury verdict. I can literally recall time standing up waiting for the jury verdict to be read when I could hear my heart thumping in my chest. So the, the boost you get from it, the, the enormous adrenaline rush you get throughout the course of a trial, even a long trial, is, is really something that can't be duplicated. Is that something that in your experience, you feel throughout the course of the trial, or is it something that manifests especially when you're waiting for a verdict? Well, you feel it throughout the trial, and you also feel it in the preparation for the trial, the run-up to the trial. You have to remember it's like running a marathon, not a sprint, even a short trial. It can be enormously wearing on you physically. Every trial lawyer has superstitions. Mine usually revolve around what I eat during the course of a trial. For me, lunch is always a banana and a chocolate chip cookie. So you, your nutrition goes bad, your sleep is non-existent, and you've got to pace yourself during the course of a trial. But yeah, I think that adrenaline rush really continues throughout the entirety of a trial. Is it distinguishable from being nervous, or are they one and the same, or is it 
Is it partially nerves? Well, I don't think it's nervous. I've never felt nervous when I do a trial. I feel I feel anxious to make sure I get it right, to make sure I don't forget anything. But I, I think I, w- I would probably liken it when I talk about the performative aspects to an actor who's performing. That The difference is when you're doing a trial, you can't think of it as performing. You have to really live it and breathe it. If you're just kind of acting a role, then you're never going to be regarded as sincere either by the judge or by a jury. And I think that that's critical. I think that's interesting when you say you kind of have to live it and breathe it. I mean, that is you have to live and breathe your client's position. You do. I'm fond of saying people in my office know that I've always said it that in all my years of practice, I've never been on the wrong side of a case. And I, I truly believe that. I'm sure that some outsider would say that's completely ridiculous. But you have to completely identify yourself that you are the client. The client is you. Uh, I I remember um, uh, once sitting with a client. It was a, we were about to start the trial of a case. We were waiting for the jury to come walking out, and the the client turns to me and he says, "Peter, there's something I've got to tell you before we start." And I said, "What's that?" And I'm I'm waiting for some shoe to drop that I hadn't expected, and he says, "I really want to win this case." And I looked at him, and without breaking a smile, I said, oh, now you tell me? <laughs> uh, because, of course, the only person who wanted to win the case more than he did was was myself. And that identification with your client's position, that willingness to throw yourself at the case and really do whatever is necessary, certainly within the bounds of ethics and legal propriety, is critical. If you're just going through the motions, if you're just performing and acting a role, You'll never be believed and you'll never be taken seriously. How do you come to identify with your client's position? I mean, is that something that you're doing from the moment you get a case from your client? And if so, what is that process like? I don't know that you get it the moment you get the case from the client because, look, I'd be lying if I, if I said that uh, all of my clients were uh, wonderful people with whom I wanted to break bread and, and have a drink. Some of them are not, and some of their positions are not necessarily attractive in a variety of different ways. But identification with their cause is something different. And, and that I think you do from a very early point. We're blessed to live in a system, uh, an adversary system, where the whole nature of the system is two sides arguing in order to find what the ultimate truth is as determined by the finder of fact. So our job is to present that position in the best way possible and, and the most persuasive way possible. That's what calls for the identification and that ability to really give yourself up entirely and, and, and to sublimate yourself to the needs of the client. That's interesting. And so it sounds like that there's a process from the moment you get a case where, of course, you're you're doing your own sort of investigation of the facts of the case and trying to determine what the most compelling cause is for your client that you'll ultimately seek a trial. Are you thinking about trial early on in a case, even though you know we all appreciate that that could well be years down the line? An amazing trial lawyer in the United States Steve Sussman, who passed away recently, once was talking to me, and and he made that very point that from the moment he gets a case, he's immediately thinking about his his opening and closing arguments. He's thinking about what it's like at trial. I don't think I share that view because I'm, you know, as litigators, we understand that much of of a case revolves around discovery and all of the pretrial activities that one way or another resolve many, many, the vast majority of cases. So I, I don't know that I necessarily think about a case in terms of its trial appeal immediately. On the other hand, when I meet a, a client 
or a witness, I am immediately thinking about what will that person be like as a witness, whether at a deposition or a trial? What am I going to have to do to weave that person's story into the narrative that I'm forming? So what I am doing from the beginning is trying to think of a narrative for the case. And that's a narrative that's going to run through the course of the trial, whether it's through a motion to dismiss or a summary judgment motion, through depositions or ultimately through a trial. That that narrative hopefully will, will be consistent from the beginning of the case to the end so that the judge or whoever it is who's or arbitrator, whoever is listening to the case, will understand that there is a narrative that frames this case and that all of the activity in the case is in service of that narrative. And it sounds like that's something that's evolving throughout the course of the litigation. It's not as though from the outset you develop this narrative and then seek to implement it through discovery. It sounds like what you're saying is it's kind of this interactive and evolving process. It is. The, the, way, I, the way I think of it graphically is you have all the facts about the case arrayed on a, a table on separate slips of paper. And your job is to kind of turn it into a coherent whole with a through line that goes from beginning to end. That's why chronologies and timelines are so important so that people can think about a case in a linear fashion. What happened next? What happened after that? And that takes work because there's many, many facts that are superfluous or unnecessary to the narrative or distracting from the narrative. So your job, and that does evolve, is to figure out how all the facts that you discover and everything that you find in the case, all those little slips of paper that you array on the table, how those fit into your narrative, into this through line that you're creating for the case. I want to talk about what you think is the most important element of a trial. And perhaps before we do that, we should identify what we mean when we say a trial. You know, I think people often think that, oh, that's a jury trial. If you've seen Law & Order, you can identify with that. But of course, we have bench trials. And nowadays, lots of cases are tried before an arbitrator or a panel of arbitrators. Is trial, that is, the elements of trial, are they the same in each of those contexts? Are they different? I think jury trials have some particular things that are unique to them because you're playing to a different kind of an audience and you have to have different sensibilities about how you're presenting your material as opposed to for an expert arbitrator, for example, that you don't have to do the same things that you would do for a jury. But having said that, the method is the same. What you have to do, whether arbitration, whether it's a preliminary injunction hearing, whether it's a bench trial, whether it's a jury trial, really involves the same storytelling, narrative creating activity that you, you need to do from beginning to end. How you present that might be a little bit different. So except for jury selection, which of course wouldn't take place before a judge in the context of a bench trial or an arbitrator or a panel of arbitrators in the context of an arbitration. Otherwise, the elements of a trial are, are mostly the same, right? Opening statement, witness testimony and cross-examination, closing arguments, and the opportunity for motions and objections throughout. Is that fair? Yes, I, that's generally so. To me, the most fun part of a trial is the cross-examination because you, you can't really necessarily predict how it's going to go. It's something that's iterative. It's something that you have to be in the moment and feel. The least interesting is direct examination because that's entirely prepared. But the most important part of a trial I have always felt is the opening statement, especially when it comes to a, a, a jury trial. 
opening statements for a bench trial or an arbitration are a little bit different because by the time you get to trial, you will have, in effect, made your opening statement many, many times over through conferences, through motions and otherwise. So it's a little bit less important. But for a jury trial, an opening statement is really the first opportunity that the jury has to hear your story. I, I remember seeing a study that said something like, 90 plus percent of jurors make up their minds after the opening statement and then have to be persuaded otherwise. In other words, they, they've made up their minds. They can be dissuaded from that. They can be pushed off it, but that, then that's an uphill climb. So the importance of an opening statement in creating what I think of as a covenant with the jury, that you will be truthful to them, you make certain promises and that if those promises come out to be true, that as you present the evidence, as you say, it's true that, that they are covenant to you, is that they will rule in your favor. Why do you think that is? I mean, that that's such an interesting note that 90% or so, according to this statistic of trials, are won or lost at the opening statement. Well, I think it's because jurors come in off the street. They know nothing about the case other than the one or two sentences that the judge may talk to them about during a voir dire, during jury selection, and they're anxious. They want to hear what the case is about, and they are a blank slate. So they don't know you, and they don't know the case. Again, your job is to show them that you're not just a hired gun, you're not just somebody who's mouthing the words, but that you are faithful to your word. And again, one of the things I do, there are a couple of stock things I do during the course of an opening. One is I almost always analogize an opening to looking at the uh, picture on a jigsaw puzzle box that people should refer back to that picture as they're putting the pieces together. Because you don't necessarily put all the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together in the exact order, left to right, top to bottom. You find a piece, you try to see where it fits. And in order to see where it fits, you sometimes refer to the picture on the box to say, okay, I see where that fits. Let me now put it in that place. I find that's a very useful mental image for jurors to see. The second thing I do, again, is to almost literally make this covenant with jurors and making promises of what the evidence will show. That's why you never want to overclaim or say something in an opening that you're not going to be able to make good on. And then when I come back at the closing, go back over my opening, use that as the frame for my closing and say, look, you know, I told you I'd tell you this. I told you this. I told you you'd hear this. You've heard this. And that way... If the by that time, hopefully the jury has faith in you that you're a straight shooter and, and that they can have faith in your sincerity, you've made that contract with them. You've made that covenant with them that they will now follow your lead and what you asked for in the jury result. When you stand up to give your opening statement, I'm sure you could talk for hours about why the evidence that's going to come out should result in a verdict in your client's favor. I mean, how do you synthesize all of the facts that you expect to come out in favor of your client down to a bite-sized opening statement? And do you have a view on how long an opening statement yeah, should be? Good question. And I, I can't say that one size fits all. It's definitely different for different kinds of cases. And very technical cases present a real challenge. And I've had a, a number of very technical jury cases, which really did pose particular challenges being in front of a, of a lay jury. I don't think I prepare anything as much as I prepare for an opening. Uh, you prepare all aspects of your case, certainly, but an opening has to really be crafted to do exactly what you said. It can't be too long, but it has to be long enough to give the the jury the understanding of what the case is about, what the compelling portions of the case, and to make sure that you're not leaving something out that when they hear it, they're going to go, wait a minute, 
Wang didn't tell me anything about that, where that come from. On the other hand, you also want to, and this is part of the performative aspect of it, you want to leave room for, I won't say surprises, but delights for the jury to see something, understand where it fit with the narrative that you post, even if you didn't exactly say, you're going to hear something that's really going to knock your socks off later in this trial. You want that to happen organically by itself. So I spend a lot of time, I actually write out openings. I don't read openings, but I write them out. And then I, I do exactly what you're talking about. I kind of take away the, the fluff, the stuff I don't need. I try to make them shorter rather than longer. And I try never, never, never to refer to even an outline when I'm giving, when I'm giving my opening, I, I really try to lock in with the jury and make that connection. I was just about to say, why is that? I think you answered the question. It's oh, sure. You want to you develop a, a real connection. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I guess the joke goes that uh, the most important thing for a trial lawyer is sincerity. And if you can fake that, you've got it made. But really, it is, sincerity is important. And, and you're never going to be regarded as sincere if you're reading from a, a sheet of paper. I'm not a big fan of PowerPoints, but they have their uses, certainly, to kind of focus a, a jury or a judge on what your argument is. I am a big fan of graphic presentation. One of the most interesting trials I ever did was a very lengthy trial involving the, the construction of a hotel in Times Square. And the concept of what it meant for a construction to be delayed and why that would lead to monetary damages, it was an elusive concept, certainly for a jury. And what I came up with was the idea of having a graphic presentation, a computer simulation of what the building was supposed to look like and how it was supposed to be constructed on its original schedule, what it actually looked like and what the schedule actually was, and to kind of compare them side by side at various points in time to show the, the jury and to show the judge what that difference was. That was, I'm fairly certain this, I think it was the first time that a computer simulation was ever used in a, a jury other than for an accident case where they would simulate accidents. It was fabulous. I mean, it really, it was something that we took a long time with graphic designers to do it. We had to make sure, obviously, that it was faithful to the evidence, to what the evidence was going to show. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been allowed in evidence. There was a long series of in, in limine motions about that. The only person who loved it more than the jury was the judge. Thought it was a fantastic element. And in fact, the, the judge then asked me to go around with her to give speeches at various places about the use of graphic evidence in jury trials as a way to, to aid in the presentation. It, it was cool. That sounds very cool. Of course, and if you looked at that, I, I've, I've had occasion to look at that simulation now because this was about, I want to say it was in the uh, 80s. It was in the mid-80s. And it looked so <laughs> routine because people now use graphic simulations for just about every kind of trial. Right. It's, a, it's a complete art form presenting uh, evidence graphically. So recognizing the value and benefit of a graphic, particularly at the opening statement stage, do you try to prevent your adversaries from utilizing those kinds of things? And how do you do that? Well, you do. Um, uh, look, you're trying to put up every roadblock you can to interrupt and, and disrupt the flow of what your adversary is doing, uh, making sure, of course, that their presentation is faithful to the evidence, because if it's a summary, if it's a PowerPoint, if it's some sort of chart or a graphic, if you can show that it's not faithful or, or it distorts the evidence in some way, you can use it. There's, there are a series of rules, certainly, that, that govern whether or not the graphics are an aid or are they evidence itself. And you have to make sure that you're separating the two you have more leeway if it's just an aid as opposed to a piece of evidence itself. 
you also, on the other hand, don't want to be a smartass if the jury sees you popping up and objecting to your adversary every time your adversary opens uh, his or her mouth. That's not going to go well, at least until the jury knows you better. At some point, you kind of can feel or sense, again, whether it's a judge or a jury, whether or not you have the leeway to do that because with luck, the jury or judge have lost confidence in your adversary and they're looking to you to put them back on the path. So your objections should have that role. So if there's something in a graphic or in a chart that is misleading, and if you feel that the judge is open to that suggestion, that it's a good opportunity to do that. You mentioned earlier that in your experience, direct is the most boring part of the trial, Yeah, at least putting on your witnesses and directing them. Cross-examining witnesses is the most interesting or fun part of trial. So with respect to the direct examination of your witnesses, what do you do to sort of counteract this sort of boring nature that inheres? It's all in the preparation. You you have to prepare with your witness because by definition, direct is of your witness, somebody who one way or another you, you, you have uh, control over. You have to really prepare that so that you're a witness and you are in sync, that you're not reading the, the outline. And certainly, of course, your witness won't have the outline in front of the witness. So you have to make it look spontaneous. That's performative. Maybe that's why it's less fun, because that amount of rehearsal that you do on direct examination is something that it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of practice, but it doesn't feel creative other than in the execution of it, as opposed to cross-examination, which is almost always creative. You know, that's not to say that cross-examination doesn't have just as much, if not more, preparation. You Tricks. The things you that really are the high points of trials are prepared. You know you're going to do them in advance. It's very rare that something pops into your head in the middle of a course examination. You say to yourself, well, let's give this a try, because that's quite dangerous, to say the least. <laughs> the commonplace statement is you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. I don't agree with that at all. Sometimes you do, but what you have to have thought out is, if the person answers X, where do I go from there? If the person answers Y, where do I go from there? So that every avenue is blocked. Every avenue is in your service and not something that the witness can use. So how do you, I mean, how do you prepare for cross-examination? You have to literally run through those things in your head. I mean, I have sheets that will have lines of cross-examination and then I will order them in the order I want to ask them so that it makes sense. Sometimes building up to a crescendo, building up to the aha moment on cross-examination. It, of course, gigantically relies on the documents that you know you have or the testimony that you know you have from prior depositions. And again, this goes for juries or or for judge cases. You're, again, weaving your story and you have to do it in a way that the the witness doesn't see you coming from a mile away. So that takes a lot of practice and a lot of preparation. So in some respects, cross-examination, like openings, is the element that takes the most amount of practice to make sure that you've got goods, that you don't start yourself down the line, that you're not going to be able to make a point of. And every point of your cross-examination has to be apparent. If it's so subtle that its meaning is lost, then it's lost. There are some courts in some jurisdictions, I've never had it in New York, but I had it, for example, in in a case I tried in, in Seattle, Washington, where courts will allow you to do kind of mini closings 
after witnesses or, or mini openings in advance of witnesses, in effect, to say, look, this is what this witness is going to say, or this is what you just heard. Let me explain it. It's really quite interesting because it's like a commentary that comes with the testimony. It's very helpful. But again, it's a little bit disconcerting. You know, you feel like you're, you're, you're reading an annotated version of some novel. Is it your experience that that takes place in more complicated cases to sort of no, crystallize the... It, it, the the case that I had it in was a, a complicated case that involved trade secrets and patent protection. It was something that was fairly, I won't say commonplace, but it had been used with a lot of effect in the Washington state courts. I wasn't familiar with it. It took some getting used to and a lot of help from our local counsel as to what it would be like. But I actually enjoyed it. It was kind of a, of a different experience, having many openings and many closings. So over the course of our conversation, we've established some qualities of trial lawyers or some important aspects of being a trial lawyer. Preparation, lots of it. Being sincere and being able to connect with the trier of fact, whether it's the jury or the judge. And being able to perform using some theatrics. What, if any other traits, would you say are important to being a good trial lawyer? Well, one of the things that I've found over the course of my career is that it's amazing to me that everything matters. Everything matters. And I guess this is kind of a subset of the performative aspect. It matters what you wear. It matters how you sit. It matters how you're treating the people who are sitting at your table. It matters how you're treating your adversary. And you're never off camera. I can remember a situation where I learned after a trial and talking to the jury that the jury had seen my adversary berating his associate outside the courtroom while they were waiting for a car and they were going into a black limousine to go back <laughs> to their office. Sure. That's not the only reason, but I always take a subway to and from a court. Unless I'm I'm carrying you know big heavy bags, and I, I, sure. I, I take a car service, and if I take a car service, I damn well make sure it's not a limo, because you never know. You're always on, and I've spoken to enough juries and judges after cases are over that the things that they focus on are not always the things that you expect. They're looking at everything, so you have to how you treat everybody is very much apparent how you're treating the clerks and how you're treating the judge and the court reporter. It's apparent to the judges, but it's also apparent to the juries as well. I hadn't thought much about interacting with your adversary during the course of the trial. Oh, yeah. But, if, if, but, you're, if you're seen as a smart ass and, and somebody who doesn't treat your adversary with respect, that will not go well. I mean, if, if you feel for sure that the judge or the jury has already developed a, a distaste, then you can perhaps judiciously pile on. But I wouldn't do that. I, I, again, I think that you always want to be seen as a straight shooter and someone who's really there to present the story, that the story you're telling is correct. And, and there's nothing that should get in the way of that, like fights with your adversary or over things of that nature. So how do you reconcile that view with the view that you identify totally and completely with your client's cause, and you have to sort of believe that you're on the right side of the case. You'd think that necessarily you'd view your adversary as some obstacle or obviously a competitor of yours on the way to the end you're seeking, but there seems to be a tension there. There is. I think there is, uh, and I think that certain certain lawyers sometimes don't know where that line is and, and how not to cross it. Uh, my mentor, Arthur Friedman, who was truly a legendary trial lawyer. He was always in warrior mode. 
and God, he got away with it in in a great way. And uh, and I don't know that I could ever want to emulate it, much less emulate it. But to him, all of his opponents were absolutely Satan, and he would treat them as such, and would never call them by their first name, and he would never treat them anything other than the most arm's length uh, diffidence. I have a different style with that. I, I actually try to see myself and portray myself to juries and uh, judges the way I feel that I am, somebody who likes people, enjoys making connections with people, and, and can make a connection. I can do that with an adversary at the same time as I'm completely engaged with my client's case. I remember one lesson that, that Arthur always told me is that if you just got your head beaten in by a, a judge on some ruling, it would drive him crazy for the lawyers to say, thank you, your honor. Even though it's, of course, the most normal thing that all lawyers do as right. soon as they finish, that that you somehow have to communicate to the judge, what you just did to me was wrong. I'm going to demonstrate to you that it was wrong over the course of the case. It may not be today, but God knows I'm not going to thank you for just coming up with a ruling that was wrong. So that that was his way of of maintaining that through narrative throughout the uh, the entirety of the case. Oh, that's really interesting. So, Peter... So far, this has been incredibly insightful and informative and, and a good time generally, but this wouldn't be a podcast with a veteran trial lawyer unless we talked war stories. So with that in mind, I have just a couple of questions. First, what is your most memorable trial experience? Well, there are many, and I think actually every trial has a memorable experience that's ingrained in you forever, and you'll never forget it. You may f- forget the particulars of a case, but you remember the experience. And that's different maybe than my most memorable trial, which perhaps we'll talk about in a few moments. But a memorable experience, I remember a case, it was actually a retrial of a case. We had won, and it was reversed on the basis of a faulty jury instruction, and then had to retry the case. And I was terrified that in retrying the case, I had already used up all my tricks the first time around, and now <laughs> they'd be known. And and to make matters worse, the my adversary in that case was a retired federal judge who was very well known, but not particularly well liked. He was a very difficult uh, judge, and he was he was trying this case. Things were going great in the case for week one, week two, week three. The, the case lasted seven weeks, and every day I said, "God, this is going so well. This is the second time I said." I'm waiting for a shoe to drop because you're always you're always nervous. You're always worried about what you're forgetting, what you haven't done. And I was examining a witness on direct examination to get in a particular document, and the author of the document was unavailable. So we were getting it in under the unavailability rules, part of the business records exception. And the witness testified that the the author was unavailable because he was in uh, Pakistan. And my adversary, who was this retired federal judge, and he was a very grandiose, a man in full, stands up and he starts his cross-examination. He says, so tell me, and I, I remember the person's name, so tell me, sir, Mr. Witness, you say that this document, this document's a pretty important document, isn't it? He says, yes, it is. He says, and you say we should put it, it's right to have it in evidence, don't you? Yes, yeah, I do. And you're saying that that's because the, the uh, uh, man is unavailable, that's what you're saying, correct, that he's in, in, in Pakistan? Do I have that right? And as he's asking these questions, I have this cold feeling in the pit of my stomach that, oh, my God, this guy's going to come marching into right. the back door. <laughs> this trial's going to be over. All that sincerity and faith and trust that I've built up with it, Shuri, over three weeks, it's going to be destroyed. 
And the witness says, yes, that's right. And with that, this retired federal judge turns to the witness, points his bony finger at him and says, I accuse you of perjury. And then he points at me and I accuse you of suborning perjury. And the courtroom erupted because by this time, as I say, the judge and I had a very good rapport that the judge who was. And this uh, is in front of the, the jury. In front of the jury. The jury, is, their eyes pop open and the judge immediately dismisses the jury to hear what's going on. Sure. And he says to my adversary, says, you know, you just made a startling point. What, what, what's the basis for accusing of perjury? And he says, I have here in my hand. And as he starts talking, I could see that he realizes to himself, maybe this wasn't the smartest thing to do. He says, I have here a document from the U.S. Embassy establishing that the author of this document is not in Pakistan. He's in Bangladesh. The judge <laughs> equally unavailable. howled in laughter. I stood up and I said, you know, judge, I said, I get that entire subcontinent confused. <laughs> and the judge called back, berated my adversary privately, called back the jury in front of the jury, made him apologize to the witness and to me, explained that he was completely wrong, that it had to do with the Bangladesh versus Pakistan distinction, and the case was over. That was it. And to make it even sweeter, that was the last witness that that retired federal judge examined. And what about the most memorable trial? I take it you have a trial. Well, that... you know, and again, they're all memorable. And that, that trial itself, because of the nature of having to try a case for six weeks, winning it, having it reversed, and then doing it again was certainly something that was extraordinary. It was, it was exhausting, but it had a fantastic result for our client at the time. It was, I think it was the largest verdict. We represented the plaintiff for a, a commercial case. It was the largest jury verdict that had ever been in the Southern District. But I really think, and I know it sounds maybe elementary, but my most memorable trial experience was my first. And it was in a small claims court in the Bronx on 161st Street. And the case went to trial at around midnight because uh, small claims court was at night. The judge sat there and went through all the cases and resolved every last one of them. I don't remember the last time he probably had ever actually tried a case, but this case we could not settle. Had to, my client was a bus company and was being accused of having a bus breakdown and people getting sick on the bus, none of which had happened. And they felt it was important to actually take this case through. So I, I prepared it and I had the bus driver as a witness, and I had I had an expert witness talking about, it's almost like a black box on buses that mm -hmm. tell you, you know, how, when a bus was operating, how many miles it went, and I had that, and I, I cross-examined the passenger who was claiming that the bus had broken down and she had gotten sick, and we were finished around 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and we were all finished with the, uh, the examination. I loved it. It was great, even though it was, it was a ridiculous thing, and the judge says, huh, decision reserved. And I'm quite sure that in the history of small claims court in the Bronx, no decision had ever been reserved ever. And sure enough, after a couple of weeks, the, the judge issued a decision and I prevailed and I, and, and I was hooked. I mean, that was it. I, I think I, I, I did that trial probably within six months at the time that I started work after my clerkship. So I was going to ask you, how did you fall in love with trying cases? It sounds like that experience sort of crystallized it. Well, I fell, in, uh, I fell in love with the concept of trying cases while I was clerking. 
actually, to be honest about it, even in law school, watching Perry Mason every night at dinner, it was on reruns every night at seven o'clock. Perry Mason's before your time, uh, but it was it was uh, Law and Order in the 1960s and 70s. And Raymond Burr, who was Perry Mason, he never lost. And Hamilton Berger, uh, who was the prosecutor, never won. And it was fantastic because it was filled with aha moments. And I always felt that that's what you had to do when you did a trial. You had to come up with the aha moments that really were the kickers that would stay with the jury long after they sat on the trial or with the judge. And I've been blessed with that as well, that I have good relationships with a lot of the judges. And when I see them, they'll remember cases I tried in front of them. And we'll talk about those little high points in a trial of something that they, they thought were really cool. But clerking, seeing trials, thinking about that, and then being fortunate enough to be able to do some trials early on in my career, it's a drug. It's just great. So I agree with you. I, too, tried my first case in the Bronx. As you know, I started my career as a, as a prosecutor in the Bronx. And because of that, I, I got some trial experience earlier in my career. Of course, nowadays, most cases settle before trial, you know, in excess of 90 percent. And of those cases that go to trial, something like 90 percent settle before a verdict. In criminal cases, even less go to trial, something like 98 percent settle before trial, according to a statistic that I recently reviewed. How can young lawyers get trial experience given the state of trials? That's a, a good point. Look, most firms have uh, great trial advocacy programs that I think give people the experience of being on trial, even when they're not actually on trial. Pro bono opportunities present that as well, the opportunity to to try cases in that setting that, that oftentimes uh, younger lawyers have the opportunity to participate. Certainly people who, like you, were uh, prosecutors have that opportunity at an early stage in, in their career. And I think some of the very, very best trial lawyers started life as prosecutors because they, they got that experience. Watching is the best way to do it. Again, clerkship, invaluable experience for young lawyers to to see trial after trial, to, to hone your own technique when you see other people do it and also know what not to do because sometimes you see things that just absolutely leave you slack-jawed in astonishment that people could do certain things. Because that's how you learn. And then you learn also by making mistakes, by doing it. But to do that, you have to have the experiences. So I agree with you that I think that the, the tendency, because of the cost of trials, the time involved, the fact that even when you do have a case that wants to go to trial, there's such a backlog on trial calendars that it makes it very, very difficult to find the opportunity. So you have to work at it. You've got to maybe go down to court and just watch uh, trials so to kind of do them vicariously. Hopefully, I think that as an art form, it's something that won't be lost. I, I, I really do firmly believe that uh, our system of having cases ultimately decided through trials when they can't be resolved uh, otherwise is a wonderful method. And it's great fun. I'd be lying if I said that part of the reason I love it is because it's fun to do. Well, I certainly agree with you in that regard. One final question, Peter. What do you wish you would have known when you were just starting out as a lawyer that you learned over the course of decades being a trial lawyer? That's a great question. I think what I've learned, I guess I put it under the, the banner of humility, is what not to do, what not to ask, and to not go down every pathway. As lawyers, we're trained always about the what-ifs. If this argument doesn't work, how about this argument? If that argument doesn't work, how about the other argument? 
And to do that, and to go down all those paths, to have a 100-page cross-examination when really the aha moment came at page two or three, you have to learn what to pare away, what to edit. I think most younger lawyers suffer from this. I certainly did. It's knowing when to stop, knowing when to be, when not to ask the next line of questions. Not because you're going to get the bad answer, but it dilutes your presentation. You know, I started off this podcast by talking about the importance of that narrative, that through line, which should drive your entire presentation from the beginning of the case to the end. And if you ask too many things off to the side, you're going to to dilute that message and it will dilute your effectiveness. So I have found over time that I'm faster to the point and easier to walk away from, from a witness when I'm done with the point, rather than feel like I've got to just grind that person with every possible line of questioning to show how smart I am. I think that's a great point. And I think younger lawyers are so anxious about leaving a stone unturned and so badly want to cover every possible angle to buttress their position and, and bolster their case. But it sounds like it can have the adverse. It is. It, it can. I, I think, again, it's a question of self-confidence, that if, you're, if you don't have the self-confidence, you're going to want to cover every base because that way you'll have covered every base and no one can ever accuse you of not being thorough and, and covering the point. I've seen, and I've seen it in trials with adversaries going down lines of question that just blew up. They were at best distracting and at worst you know, horribly damaging to their case. I'll just <laughs> end with one quick war story. Trying a case with uh, the issue was we represented certain board members who were claiming that they had been essentially induced to retire at a time that they weren't able to take advantage of a very, very significant merger and buyout opportunity that they would have been able to have. And there were a lot of good and important legal points that were explored and being explored by the defendants in that case. But one of the issues that developed was that one of my clients had uh, Parkinson's disease. And the questioner, the defendant's attorney, was questioning my client on the theory that because my client had Parkinson's, he would have resigned anyway because he would have been physically too infirm to continue acting as a board member. So therefore, the resignation wasn't caused by the representations and misrepresentations that were non-disclosures about the state of the buyout, but by the fact that he was sick. That was horrible. The jury thought it was horrible. I was able to establish that my client was sitting on five other boards, was active in community and philanthropic events, and that the notion that he was otherwise infirm was just, it was insulting. And it certainly was something that was unnecessary. It was a bright idea that some lawyer had that said, ah, I think I can attack causation because that's what lawyers do. Sure. Think of every possible attack. And it was so antithetical to what their real message was in the case that there were no misrepresentations made or whatever non-disclosures made were immaterial that they lost, they lost then the and jury. there. They lost then and there. They lost the jury. The judge told them they lost the jury and it resulted in a settlement the next day with the judge telling them if they didn't settle, they were, they were really going to be in bad shape. And that's something that that, again, was a, a good reminder of not to do too much. 
That is a good reminder indeed. Well, listen, Peter, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. I've appreciated it enormously. Thank you. Well, as you can tell, Peter loves trial, especially the thrill of preparing and putting on his case. And not surprisingly, he always wants to win. Peter explained clearly why, in his view, opening statements are the most important part of a trial, and sincerity is the most important thing for a trial lawyer to convey. Peter also shared a few unique trial rituals, like his go-to lunch of a banana and chocolate chip cookie, and his mode of transportation to and from court while on trial, the subway. Thanks to Peter's war stories, I think we should all steer clear of using a witness's medical condition against her and make sure not to confuse Bangladesh and Pakistan or accuse a witness of perjury in front of the jury. In sum, Peter is a treasure trove of trial insights and stories, and he was an excellent first guest for the On Trial podcast. Please tune in next time for another interesting discussion on the art of trial with another seasoned and talented trial lawyer. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner, LLP, on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create, and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.